In Luke chapter 10, we find one of the most famous parables recorded in Scripture. In fact, most people, whether they've been in church or not, have probably heard uh, these words of some, in some form or fashion in their life. Luke chapter 10, we find that Jesus is asked a question by a ruler. There's some Pharisees and rulers. One uh, gospel calls him a lawyer. And Jesus is talking to people, and this lawyer stands up, and he tries to pose a question that will trick Jesus. And the question he asked, uh, after, first he asked, which is the most important commandment? And uh, uh, Jesus, he, Jesus asked him this question in this discourse that's going on, and, and Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so realizing he hasn't really tripped up Jesus with this, because who can argue with that? He gives a follow-up question. And he says, so Lord, if that's true, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus then begins to answer this question with the recounting of a parable involving travelers. One, a beaten traveler who's captured on the road uh, on his journey. The other, a Samaritan. Of course, this is the parable of the good Samaritan. It's famous the world over. In fact, there are laws in many countries that have this term applied to them as Good Samaritan laws. There's Good Samaritan laws that you can't leave the scene of an accident or else you get charged with a crime because you're supposed to look out for your fellow man is the observation we get from this. And so there's laws throughout the world that are called Good Samaritan laws and they are laws that are usually involved with helping someone in need. And, and Jesus concludes this parable by asking this same ruler, this lawyer, a question after he has related the story. He says to the lawyer, he asks him, which of the three of the priests, the Levite, and the Samaritan was a neighbor? Of course, the lawyer could only reply, the obvious reply was the Samaritan. And that's the answer that comes back. And Jesus then challenges the man to go and do likewise, to show mercy likewise as the Samaritan has. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this part of the story because most people have heard this part of the story. And we understand we are challenged by this parable, just like the Samaritan and the Jew, the Jew that he helped. We know they were enemies. We know that there was age-old uh, uh, bad blood that went between these uh, two groups of people. And so... Uh, we, we realize this parable is challenging us to see past what maybe we might see through the lens of our culture. Maybe what we see through the lens of our background. What we see through the lens of our upbringing. That our culture says this person is someone that shouldn't be trusted. Or our background has told us that this is a person that you should cross over the road when you see. Or our upbringing says, you know what, I've dealt with that kind of person before. But instead, this parable challenges us to see that person as someone that has a need and who is created in the image of God. We understand that parable is telling us that all man is created in the image of God. No matter what condition they are in, no matter what state they are in, no matter their background, no matter their upbringing, they are created in the image of God. And we are challenged through this parable to help not just those that we feel comfortable seeing, but also those that we are uncomfortable with. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's people in situations that we can get into where we begin to feel uncomfortable no matter what we may say. And again, this can be more difficult than we realize. 
And we know this lies at the core of many of Jesus' teachings. While most people could recount the parable of the Good Samaritan, the core of the message is a whole lot harder to live out than what Jesus has actually said. In fact, with many of Jesus' teachings, the phrase could be applied easier said than done. If you've ever had to turn the other cheek, you realize that. If you've ever had to, to love your enemy, forgive your enemy, you realize it's a whole lot easier said than done. And in the same way, there's certain people that if we were put in that situation, I don't know, we might struggle with the attitude of the Levite and of the priest. We begin to think about that one person that just gets on your nerves at work. That one That one person that the Lord convicts you of and you come to an altar and you pray and you think tomorrow I'll do better and then they show up in just the side of their face. They didn't even do anything different. And just the side of their face you're like, oh, that drives me nuts and they haven't even done anything yet. (laughs) Begin to think about the person who is not just the side of their face drives you nuts and they haven't done anything, but what about the person who's genuinely done you wrong in the past? What about the person that when, you can, that when you look at, all you can think about is they're not going to fool you twice? You see, it becomes a little bit more difficult when we see that person laying on the road. But these are the people that are included in the neighbor category, according to Jesus. His words become tough when I realize who all Jesus was including in that neighbor category. We understand this is the meaning that Jesus was immediately putting forth to the lawyer who was tempting him. Because it's clearly stated at the end of the parable, this is, this is the reason that Jesus told the parable. Yet, as with many other stories, in fact, as, as we talked about on Sunday, there's many layers to the stories that we find in scriptures. That's why I can read the same story and the Lord can speak to me in a different way from the same story. There can be more than one thing that I can pull from the story. And so while we are to take an example from the Samaritan of loving your neighbor, who is my neighbor, everyone that is in need, while I can take that and apply that to myself personally as I begin to approach people, I believe there's something else that we can glean from this story as we talk about the cost of running an inn. It becomes very easy to find myself in this story through a different character. I find myself... Sometimes, yes, I find myself as a Samaritan. In fact, that's the heroic way that I can find myself. But sometimes I find myself in the character of the Jewish traveler that was concerned with his journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see, very simply, you and I were no different than this Jewish traveler when it came to our lives before Christ. We had plans, we had goals, we had a life that we were living, we had a destination where we were heading. Some of us were more sure of that than others. And while it may not have been as sudden as as some thieves jumping out from behind a rock as happened to this man, each one of us, though, at some point in our lives found ourselves surrounded by sin, found ourselves surrounded by an enemy. We found our lives interrupted by the intrusion of sin. And just as the thieves left the man half dead, so did sin leave our lives. Sin was not holding back when it approached our life. It was not trying to, to let us off easy, but we know that sin has a goal in its life. The enemy and sin have the same goals which Scripture tells us, that they are there just to steal, kill, and destroy, just like the thieves on the road that day. And all of us, at some point in our life, sin set upon you, some to a greater or lesser degree, and it set out to destroy your your life. In fact, it was content to leave you once it had beaten you up for a while, once it had taken your self-respect, once it had taken your self-esteem, once it had taken whatever it could from you, it was content to leave you to fend for yourself. 
You see, sin has a way of taking my dignity and then leaving me. Sin has a way of taking my marriage and then leaving me. Sin has a way of even taking my money. Sin isn't just something that happens in in a spiritual sense. Sin begins to take a physical toll upon my life. Sin begins to affect my body. Sin begins to affect my finances. Sin begins to affect my family. And, and, And it's very easy for sin to just take those things from you. And then it's very content to leave you on the side of the road. And, and we find ourselves left by the side of the road with barely enough strength to live. Help walks by, yet they don't see who you were. <laughs> you see, sin has a way of taking you from who you were to this mess lying on the road right now. You didn't intend to end up lying on the road beaten up. You didn't intend when you started down that path to end up where you are right now. Yet we are found in this situation and when help walks by, we know who we are on the inside and yet help just sees someone beaten by the side of the road. They see someone that's a mess by the side of the road. They can't see who you were and then they can't also see the potential of what you could be if someone would just help me. Have you ever been in that spot before? You think, you know what, if someone could just help me, if someone could just give me a word of encouragement today at church, if someone could just pray for me without me asking for it, if I could just receive what I need today, and yet it seems like it's just passed you by. Because it can become easy for people not even to see the potential of what is going on. All they see is the present mess. But then the story doesn't end with the guy laying by the side of the road. You see, along came an outcast. Along came an outcast. We know that the Samaritan was an outcast. He was traveling on this road and he was heading towards Jerusalem. And that was a place where he was going to be an outcast. He was an outcast to the Levite. He was an outcast to the priest. He was an outcast to the Jewish man that was laying there. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, those are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered without the gate. You see, there was one who was despised and rejected of men. There was one who was willing to be led outside of the camp for sacrifice. There was one who was willing to be an outcast for you and I. There was one who was willing to do whatever it took to enter into your life. And let me tell you, I didn't need the priest. I didn't need the Levite. I tell you what I needed. I needed an outcast. I needed somebody that was willing to go outside the gate. I needed someone who was willing to reach in the dirt because they'd been there. I needed an outcast to save me in my life. And that outcast is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, because the one who is disenfranchised by others, the one who has experienced the pain and the mess, he's the one that can look at me and he can have compassion. He can have mercy. The priest has never been in that situation. The Levite has never been in that situation. But Jesus was wounded for me. He was bruised for me. He understands what I'm going through. He was tempted in all points like as I will be. And the reason he did all that is so he can help me. So he can reach down in the pit because he He knows what the pit is like. He knows what the mess is like. And he's not afraid to reach down in you. The law could not save. 
It took an outcast. It took a reject to pick me up in my life. That's why the cross means so much to me in my life. That's why the cross is more than just an emblem on a wall. That's why the cross is more than something that I wear around my neck. The cross is something real. The cross is something dynamic. The cross is something that means something to me every day. Because of the cross, he wasn't afraid to help me. Because of the cross, he didn't cross over to the other side. Because of the cross, he saw me with compassion instead of revulsion. He saw me for who I was. He saw me for who I could be because of the cross. I'm thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ. Come on, why don't you thank him for the cross? I'm thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the cross every day, (laughs) come on, the cross needs to affect me every single day. You know why? Because I mess up a lot. (laughs) There's things that we do in our life. There's things that happen in our life that no one else even knows about. In fact, the reason no one else knows about it is because we know how they would respond if they knew about it. (laughs) But aren't you thankful for the cross? Aren't you thankful for the cross that you can't tell him anything that he'll say, nope, I'm crossing over now. You can't say anything. You can't do anything that'll cause him to say, nope, I'm going to the other side of the street. No, he always sticks by your side. He's always willing to go down in the ditch. He's always willing to reach down to where you are. So the Samaritan man aids the broken man on the side of the road. And let me just tell you, I had, I had, I went to the park yesterday, went to the skate park yesterday. Well, went there for a little bit. That was another whole endeavor there. I did not skate. Just so in case you're wondering, I have hidden talents. No, I don't. (laughs) But I I had an, I had a whole other sermon all lined up and it was uh, a lot of pages. The Lord had mercy upon your souls. And I sat down at the bench on the park at the park, and, and, and all of a sudden, the Lord just began dealing with me and brought a, a little note that I had made. I don't know when I made the note. And man, he just brought it to me and just began slapping me all around with it, sitting there at the park bench. Tell you what. And so uh, he just began dealing with me all last evening. And this morning, I was, I was sitting in a public spot, and he began... Uh, <laughs> I'll let you guess what. I was just sitting in the middle of the road. No. <laughs> I was sitting down there at Main Street in the four, in the four way, the lights there, just spinning around the circle, saying, "Lord, no." But I was I was sitting there and I, I was going through this, and man, the the oh, the Lord just began dealing with me. So I thought it's only fair if the Lord's going to rip me outside, up one side, down the other, that I just share that with you. Maybe He'll do it to you if you're lucky. So the Samaritan man aids the broken man on the side of the road. We find that he uses oil and wine to bind up the man's wounds. He used his own resources, and he set about healing the man immediately. When I see myself as the broken man on the side of the road, which is very often the case in my life, it's not just when sin affects me, but you and I know that there's other moments when we are broken in our life. There's things that will happen in life, and we will feel like we are laying on the side of the road broken. And I'm preaching to the church tonight so you and I know who the Samaritan is that walks by. 
You and I know who the outcast is. You and I know where my only strength and true healing can come from. I understand the church plays a role. I understand the body. I understand all that. I'm not negating, I'm not negating any of that. But I understand that no person can heal me like Jesus Christ can. No person can counsel me like Jesus Christ can. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 17 says, For I will restore health unto thee. I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. There's moments in our life when we could take that scripture and just start quoting it in the mirror because we feel just like that. We feel like the outcast. We saying there's no one seeking after me. There's no one coming after me. But I'm thankful for the Samaritan man. I'm thankful for Jesus Christ that says when no one else is looking out, out for you. I'm going to restore health to you. I'm going to heal you of your wounds. I know you're an outcast. I know it feels like you're alone, but you need to remember that there's a Samaritan man who's walking up and down the road and he's looking for someone to restore health to. He's looking for the brokenhearted. He's looking for someone that he can bind up their wounds, that he can pour oil and wine into. He's willing to use of himself. Psalms 147 says, The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Oh, I'm thankful that He gathered me up one day. I'm thankful that He still is willing to heal my broken heart. I'm thankful that He's still willing to bind up my wounds. You see, it took an outcast to recognize an outcast. And when that outcast finds me, he doesn't just sit there and have a pity party with me. He doesn't just sit there and say, you know what? I know how you're doing. I know how you're feeling. No, this story tells me that he sets out with one thing in mind. He wants to restore me. He wants to heal me. He wants to do something in my life that will make me different. Make no mistake, He is concerned about your salvation. Make no mistake, God is concerned about your soul. He's so concerned that He wrapped Himself in flesh. He came to this earth just so that you could be saved. But to leave the work of the cross there does the work of of the cross an injustice because He not only wants to save you, but He wants to heal and restore the outcast. He doesn't just want to bring a future hope of heaven, which I'm thankful for, but He wants to heal me now. He wants to restore me now. He wants to bind up my wounds now. In 1 Psalms, uh, Samuel 22, this is speaking of David. <laughs> it says, And everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, meaning David. And he became a captain over them. And there were about him, with him about 400 men. David has been proclaimed the champion of Israel. He's faced Saul. Saul's chasing him. (laughs) David knows he's going to be crowned king. He knows he's going to be the next king. He knows he has to bide his time. He's thinking, what's the Lord's plan now? The king's against me. What's God going to do now? I can see him saying, God's going to show up and he's going to show out. I can't wait to see what the Lord's going to do. Saul's going to throw that spear and it's going to turn around and take him out. I don't know what God's going to do. And this is what God does. Here you go, David. I'll send you everyone in distress, all the people in debt, and all the discontented. Here you go. No offense, but I thought, man, that sounds a lot like a church. No offense. I include myself in that group. But isn't it true? 
what a mess. Because we, we usually have to get to a point where we're a mess before we're willing to accept God. Proud can't accept God. person who says, I don't need any help can't accept God. It's the people who realize they're in distress, that I'm a debtor, that I'm discontented, I'm not happy with my life the way it is. Those are the people that are gathered together. And that's really an image of the church. People that realize that that old life, that holds no contentment. If I keep on that path, there's only distress there. That realize that there's a debt that I need to pay, and Jesus Christ has paid that debt. And we find this group of men that is this, this ragtag bunch of outcasts and yet God reaches down and this is the same group that suddenly a few chapters later is called David's mighty men that's what Jesus Christ does with a bunch of outcasts that's what Jesus Christ does with the brokenhearted the discontented the distressed as he reaches down and says look at this ragtag bunch of people you know what I see I see mighty men I see people who can take cities I see prayer warriors in there I see preachers in there I see missionaries in there I don't see the distress and the debt. No, he sees my future beyond even heaven. When we let God begin to fashion and form us, when we let God begin to heal us and restore us, suddenly we're no longer just a gathering. We're no longer just a mob. We're no longer just a collection of people. No, we're mighty men of valor, men and women of valor. We are warriors for Jesus Christ. We are on a mission from Jesus Christ. Now hurry up here. After the Samaritan stopped, he began to bind up the man's wounds. He then loaded the man up on his animal. Luke chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. The end of the story here coming up. It says, But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. We see here the Samaritan takes the man to an inn. This is a slightly different inn than the one that Joseph and Mary were turned away from. These are the only inns mentioned in Scripture. The inn that Joseph and Mary were turned away from is more of our idea of a hotel. Had a big banqueting hall. was a place that was typically used for gathering. This place that the man took, the Samaritan took this guy to, was more like an Airbnb. It was a guy that had a house that rented out some rooms. First of all, this wasn't a road that you really wanted to stop on. This was an emergency case. I'm running out of daylight. I know it's dangerous. I need somewhere to stay. Get on your phone and find an Airbnb close. 35 bucks, I'll do it. And you realize why it was 35 bucks. (laughs) But the Samaritan knew that this man would need a little more care than what he had given him just in that moment. So he took the man to an inn. He stayed the night with them, and then in the morning he left. Sounds familiar to me. When Jesus found me, he began the process of healing. He did something in my heart and in my soul. He began to heal things that I didn't even know needed healing. And then you know what he did? He brought me to an end for full recovery. Jesus brought you to a church. And I don't mean just a physical location, but he brought you to a body of people. Now, while many people have given definitions of the role of the church, I don't feel like it can just be narrowed down to one thing. There's a litany of uh, a whole list of things that the church could be called, but to just say this is what the church is, I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. And really, I believe this parable gives us the closest example of what the church should be and how it should operate that I can see. You see, first of all, it's a place of healing to the broken. 
Some people have likened it to a hospital. That's not incorrect. But it's also a place of restoration. It's a place of strength. It's a place of encouragement. It's a place where you are healed and then you are given a purpose. That's what the church is. It's a place for the broken, but it's a place where purpose can be found. The cost of running an inn. You see, spiritually, it's important for us to understand that this man was not left in the end just to be a patient the whole time. He was not left there just to, uh, for, for eternity just to be on the mend. You know, men, how your, how your wives are when they get sick? And they just lay around, hacking and coughing like it's the end of the world. And you know it's just a little cold. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I have altar call right now. But spiritually, we should understand that there should come a point when I'm thankful for what Jesus Christ did in my life. I'm thankful that He brought me to a church. I'm thankful that I was put in a place where I can receive healing, where I can receive the care that I need. But I need to realize in my own life, first of all, that there should be a point when I'm no longer a patient in the end, where I'm no longer an invalid, but suddenly I get to the point where now I can join in with the restoration of somebody else. You see, some people view the church as just a hospital, a place where they'll never really leave. It's more like a long-term care facility. I don't know if that's the right long-term something like that. Those words, you get the idea. Some place you go for a long time and you don't really get better. They just keep taking care of you. That's not what the church is. The church is a place that can heal, that can do a work in your life. But there comes a point when you need to get out of the bed and say, you know what? There's somebody else that I can restore. There's somebody else that I can help. There's somebody else that I can do something for. That doesn't mean that when I get better, I quit church. <laughs> well, the guy got up and he left the inn. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But there was a point when he quit being an invalid. It means that there's a point where I realize that I am healed. That there's a point where I say, you know what? I've got to get up. I've got to start doing something. The church isn't designed just to babysit me, to take care of me for my whole life. Because it's more than just a hospital. You know what? It, it's sending people out. It's a command post for a military. It, it's, it's a number of things. And so I can't just say it's a hospital. I'm going to lay in this bed. No, you're supposed to get better. Oh, <laughs> I'm supposed to quit lying at some point. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm supposed, my heart's supposed to not just, we're not just supposed to forget about it. No, Jesus Christ is supposed to heal my heart at some point. He's supposed to take care of my bitterness at some point. If that doesn't happen, then there's an issue. And I'll just be straightforward and say that it's not God and it's not the church that's an issue if you're not getting any better. Because God can, is the only one that can do it and He's put you in the place that can help you recover. So if you're not recovering, maybe there's an issue with what's going on with you. <laughs> you know, there's a, I've said it before. If I could trade in the years from 40 to 70 and be 70 for 30 years, that'd be kind of nice, I think. Those of you that are over 70 may not agree, but I think 70 is kind of a, a pivotal age where you can kind of do what you want at that point. Imagine for 30 years you can just say what you want and people are like, ah, he's 70. <laughs> I 
But some people get comfortable. Some people get comfortable being in that position. I mean, that happens in the physical, that people get comfortable and they start enjoying laying there. They start enjoying people bringing them drinks. They start enjoying ringing the bell and people coming. Let me tell you, that's not how the church is supposed to work. That's all right for a while, but God is not here just to put you in this place for you just to stay sick. No, God wants to heal you. The church wants to heal you. (laughs) So my first challenge is make sure you're getting better. That doesn't mean we're going to kick you out. You know, I come from a, a place where there's socialized health care, and you may have to wait for the bed to open, and when you're, you're well enough, they'll get you out of there because they need that bed. That's not what I'm talking about. We're going to kick you out. No, we want you to get better, but you need to be getting better. But when we take the church as the end, a place of healing and restoration, when I take myself as part of the, part, uh, of the process of healing the broken and injured, I'm left with the last phrases of this parable. You see, if the church is the end, then suddenly I find myself in the role of the innkeeper. Find myself as the innkeeper. If the church is the end, then I would suggest that we're all innkeepers. Once I get out of the bed, my role is that of an innkeeper. Luke ten thirty five. This is the last phrases of this parable. It says, and on the morrow when he departed, that's speaking of the Samaritan. He took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. These words tore me up. I'll tell you how. If we continue in the symbolism that we started, the Samaritan is Jesus, the injured man as a a broken person, a sinner, someone who needs help, the inn as the church and the innkeeper as the people in the church, then I'm left with a few troubling thoughts. The first is that the responsibility of care for those individuals falls on me. While I can't heal anyone, only Jesus can, I have the responsibility to care for those that God has found, restored, and placed in my end. I have a responsibility, a mandate from Jesus Christ. Let me just say it very very plainly. If God has brought them to this church then He has brought them into my life. If God has brought a person to this church, if God has picked somebody up off the side of the road and seen fit to bring them to this inn, then that responsibility, that, that, the responsibility of the care of that individual falls on you. You see, for too long I've walked along not seeing myself as the innkeeper. I think it's time I start seeing myself as an innkeeper. I understand I can't heal anyone, but I understand that I have a responsibility by God to continue the work that He has started. When a young person rides a van to our church for the first time and walks through these doors, how does that change my life? What has changed in my life by the three kids that got the Holy Ghost at convention? What's changed in my life by the kids that got the Holy Ghost a month and a half ago in a kids' revival on a Wednesday night? What's changed in my life? Because God's brought them to my end, and if I'm an innkeeper, suddenly I have a responsibility. You see, it becomes real easy to start pawning things off. 
But when I start seeing this as my end, and Brother Gene's preached about it, this is my church. When I start seeing this as my end, and I'm an innkeeper in this place, then suddenly what happens in the end affects me. What goes on in this end affects me. A guest checking in affects me. How would you like to check into a hotel where certain parts of the staff don't care who checked in? <laughs> You'd be going back down to the front desk a lot. Well, my sheets aren't clean. And the cleaner says, well, I don't care that you checked in. That doesn't matter to me. No, see, it's important for me to understand what happens if the church isn't in. When a guest enters the door on Sunday, I know the greeters are there. I know the ushers are there. But what does that change in my life that day? What happens to me if this is the end and I'm an innkeeper? How does that affect my life today? When somebody from CR gets baptized on a Friday night and I'm not here, how does that affect my life? If they've been brought to the inn and I'm an innkeeper, what is that child? How does that affect my life? What is that person that enters? What do they do to me? If I'm a part of this inn, then every guest in the inn should affect my life somehow. Because I am given the responsibility of that person that Jesus Christ cared enough, had compassion enough on to reach down and touch their life and draw on their heart and place them in this end. I cannot neglect. I cannot neglect. I cannot ignore. No, Jesus Christ said, I'm putting them in your care. I'm also left with this convicting and troubling thought. The Samaritan left two pennies with the innkeeper. Two pennies was about two days' wages. A half-decent amount, depending on how much the guy made. A Roman, a Roman soldier would make a penny a day, so it was a Roman soldier's two days' wages. But here's the part that convicts me. That the Samaritan knew, and I take that as Jesus. Jesus knew that what he had left wouldn't be enough. He knew two pennies would not cover the cost of the care of this man. He knew the condition of this man. He knew that two days worth of wages was not enough time for this man to fully recover. He told the innkeeper before he left, you're going to have to spend more than what I gave you to see this person fully healed. And the question for me becomes, is how much more am I willing to pay to see the healing and restoration take place? How much am I willing to pay to see revival happen and revival continue? You see, this is where it comes in. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Completely yes. Wait, the two pennies have run out. Yes. There's a cost to running an inn. Luke 14, 28, Jesus challenges His disciples. He says this to them, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and he is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus is telling his disciples, the crowds have gathered, and they're all singing, Yes, Lord, completely yes. And Jesus says, You need to hold on just a minute because there's a cost for following me. You better be willing to take up your cross and follow me. He begins to recount to them these words that it's foolish for you just to say yes and not ever stop to consider the cost. Just like you wouldn't stop 
start building a building and say, you know what? It'll just work out. We'll just, it'll just happen somehow. No, you need to plan. You need to count the cost because you'll end up looking foolish and it won't happen. I was challenged in my spirit. Yes, I want revival. Yes, I want to see things happen. But the only thing worse than not seeing revival is seeing a start of revival. And then me realizing I'm not willing to pay the price to see revival completed in this city. I lay the foundation for it. We have some people baptized. We have some people get the Holy Ghost. And all of a sudden, the two pennies run out. And I say, I can't finish the job. I can't keep paying the price. It's too much. And revival leaves. It doesn't just pass by. It visits for a moment. And then when it realizes that my yes wasn't completely yes, and I never counted the cost, it moves somewhere else. Because I believe there's a cost for revival. You can't look at any revival in Scripture or in the rest of history that didn't cost anything. And I need to understand that, the, that revival may cost the inn. Revival may cost the innkeeper. Revival may cost me something more. Something that I haven't given in my life. I have to be willing to give what I don't think I can give. And I'm speaking financially. I have to be willing to go beyond the two pennies worth. I have to give more than what I'm comfortable with. I, I, I will have to set aside some things to see revival happen. I might be, no, I probably will be awakened in the night by the groans of an injured man. It'll be an intrusion upon my time. I will have my own grace. I will have my own mercy, my own compassion tested. I'll have to fight bitterness in my spirit. Because I'll begin to say, Jesus, why did you bring them here? I can't do this. It's too much. I will have to do those things if I want to see revival accomplished. And in my notes, I had all those as may, but I changed them to will. Because I will have to go above and beyond. I will have to pray more. I will have to consecrate more of my time. I will have to show up and do some things that I'm not doing right now. The innkeeper was left with the challenge. He was left with this challenge. Do whatever it takes. Give however much you have to give. Don't even think about the cost. Here's the objective. See this person restored. The object was the man's restoration, not how much was given. But how many times in my own life do I begin to count the cost and realize what I've given? And I say, it's not worth what I've given. It's not worth my time. I'm giving too much time. It's not worth my effort. I'm putting forth too much effort. But Jesus told the innkeeper, I just want this man restored. Am I willing to sacrifice a service to help somewhere? I enjoy church. But you know what? I might have to miss a service so that I can see revival happen. Am I willing to sacrifice an evening to do something? And I'm just about done here. I'm too hot anyway. Here's what it came down to, and this troubles me too. Here's what it comes down to. Did the innkeeper trust the Samaritan enough? Did he trust the character? Did he trust the word of the Samaritan enough? Did he trust his ability to repay in full enough that he was willing to spend whatever it took? You see, when the innkeeper realized that this man was good for his word, 
he would be willing to spend whatever it took. If he couldn't accept that fact, he would struggle with spending so much. Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. The question for me becomes, is do I trust Jesus enough that he can repay whatever I spend? Ecclesiastes 11 challenges me too, because if you read it, it says, Cast your bread upon the waters. Woo, it's coming back. But it does say many days, and that means a long time. That I, I might give in the offering, and Monday I don't have a check for $1,000. It might be 15 years down the road. It may mean that I'm giving my time now, and I don't see anything take place. In fact, it feels like I'm just spending and spending and spending. But all of a sudden, I remember the words of the Samaritan. I remember the words of Jesus. And it comes down, do I trust His Word? Do I trust His character? That when He said, if you spend it, I'll give it back. It may take a while. It may be treasure laid up in heaven. But trust me, I will pay you back. The issue becomes when I quit trusting His Word and I think I'm out spending beyond God. Psalms 19.17 says, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto God, and that which he hath given away will he pay him again. What would happen if suddenly I begin seeing that when I do something for the person that's been brought to the end, when I do something and I get no visible return whatsoever, in fact, it seems like a waste. This scripture tells me that it has nothing really to do with that person in this case, but it has to do with the fact that I'm lending it to the Lord and the Lord will always repay his debts. He repaid the greatest debt that I owed. Why should he not repay this debt? Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward His name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. You see, it would be unrighteous of God to go against His word. It would be unrighteous for Him to come back and not repay you. I want to encourage you. As the Scripture says, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't be weary in well-doing. I know that you don't see the reward. I know sometimes it seems like you've gone far beyond the two pennies worth. But let me remind you that Jesus Christ will repay. He is coming back again. He will return one day. And when he comes, he will restore to you everything that you thought you had lost, everything that you thought you had paid. So you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to keep paying. I'm going to keep giving because I don't want to just see a foundation of revival. I want to see revival completed. How does this change my attitude when I see it as not wasting my money, wasting my time, wasting my effort on a person, but suddenly I'm lending that time, I'm lending that money, I'm lending my effort to the Lord. And I'm past my time. My wife's going to start texting me. I do want to say, I want to thank the people that serve in this church. Honestly, today, as I begin thinking about all the areas and things that people do, things that people see and things that people don't see, let me tell you, your time, your money, your effort is not wasted. 
And if I could be an encouragement for a moment, I know we thank the Sunday school teachers, and I'm thankful for what they do. I don't discount. I'm thankful for our Sunday school teachers that teach every week. I'm thankful for Kids Church that are missing a service right now that you wish you were missing. They're missing a service back there right now. They're, they're ministering to our kids. I'm thankful for our ushers, for our greeters that are welcoming people. I'm, I thank, I'm thankful for our van drivers. I'm thankful for all those things. I'm thankful for the, for the service leaders, for the musicians that, that are ministering, giving of their time. And I want to encourage you. It's not a waste. God's going to repay the time and effort that you put into it. And I want to thank the people that do the stuff that we don't see, the people that set up chairs, the people that set up sound. I want you to remember that that's all part of revival. That's all part of keeping it in. The people that lock up the doors after a Wednesday night after you're gone. The people that run the sound so that there's not distractions so that people can worship. The media who put up words. Let me tell you, every time that a guest comes in and they sing a song and feel the presence of the Lord, the media team's had a part of that. That's giving my time and effort. And I know it seems like a waste, but God will reward you for what you're doing. We've got people that, that, put, that put chlorine in the baptistry. We've got people that take the towels and wash the towels after someone gets baptized. I want you to watch every person that gets baptized and know I had a part in that. It's not a waste. I'm not spending my money on laundry detergent for no reason. But I'm a part of the end. I'm thankful for every person. I'm thankful for the people that empty the trash and pick up things. I want to remind you and encourage you. Don't see it as wasted effort. Don't see breakfast as a wasted effort on a Sunday morning. Don't see whatever part you play, a parking attendant, whatever it is. No, you are part of the end and you're doing a service that's necessary. And I want to challenge you to keep doing it. Keep doing it. And if you've lost the vision of why you're doing it, I pray you get a renewed vision. I'm doing this so that something can happen. I'm doing this because God's putting people in the end. And this needs done. And I want to be a part of the end. I want to be a part of restoration in somebody's life. Oh, come on. I know there's people that see it. You know what? I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I can handle this anymore. No, you're lending that to God. You're not doing it for men. You're not doing it for any reason. But suddenly I realize I'm lending it to the Lord and the Lord will repay. And I want to challenge you as I close. If I haven't yet, this is I don't have a list of things that I need you to do. I don't have a list of things. Because this is not about we need someone to do this and we need someone to do that and we need someone to do this. No, because my list is probably wrong anyway. This is about listening to what God is prompting you to do. See yourself as part of the end. And then say, Lord, what are you prompting me to do? What need are you showing me that I can take care of? Is it as simple as when people all leave after someone's baptized, I notice there's a stack of towels. And when I stop by the church Tuesday, there's still a stack of towels. And I see I can do something. Is it as simple as when someone's baptized, you see the nastiness in the baptistry and think I could do something about that? Is it as simple as, as saying, you know what, there's trash outside, I'm going to pick it up. 
I'm not giving you a list of things I need. I'm just saying, we think it has to be some big spiritual thing. And it may be spiritual. It may be that God has challenged you to show up on a Sunday morning like some people do. Or a Saturday morning and pray. Commit a day to Him. Commit an hour to Him. It may be that God's prompting you to do that. But I believe if you pray, God will show you what He's challenging you to do. And I'm telling you this right now. This goes from, I don't, I don't care who you are, but if revival's going to happen, our lives are going to be different. Let me tell you what, if that was an Airbnb, my Airbnb changes when it's just me living there and when I've got a filthy, injured man living there. There's going to be strange noises as he's groaning in there. There's going to be dirty bandages laying around. There's going to be all kinds of messes everywhere. You know what? I, my life will change. But I want to be willing to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You see, revival is not our construct. It's not something we can manufacture. It's not something that we can pull out a book or a video series and say, this is how revival is going to happen. And you cannot manufacture sustained revival. I just want to tell you the best way to sustain a revival is for you to personally pray and say, Lord, first of all, I'm willing to be an innkeeper in this inn. I'm willing to do whatever it is that I can to see revival happen. And then when the Holy Ghost begins to prompt you, you say, Lord, I'm willing to do that. I know it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but Lord, I want to do my part in the inn. I want to be an innkeeper. And I've closed 55 times. Let's stand. But I challenge you, what if I start seeing myself as an innkeeper, not just in this church, but an innkeeper of this community? What if I start going into work and I begin thinking, you know what, maybe God's brought that person to my inn. And I know they may seem annoying and it may seem like they got a bunch of problems and all kinds of stuff and they just want to tell me about it every Monday morning. I just want to get to work and not talk to anyone. But what if I start seeing myself as an innkeeper at my work? What if I start seeing myself as an innkeeper at my school? And all of a sudden I realize and think, maybe God's put that person in my care. The question is not if we want revival, because we all do. The question becomes, is are we willing to pay the cost to keep the inn open? Are we willing to pay the price? I tell you what, those words that Jesus challenges His disciples with are almost haunting. As they see a foundation laid. I've mentioned it before, that house, when you, and someone told me what had happened with the house. I can't remember now what you told me. But that house when you go through Sandoval, that was just blocks for a while and then a fireplace. That confused me a whole lot. But you ever drove by, and if you don't know the story, ever wondered what the story was? I always wondered, why they put the fireplace in? That drove me nuts, in fact. Why do they have a glass door fireplace with just cinder blocks and footings? What was the story? That's what Jesus said. The foundation will be laid, and then people will drive by and say, I wonder what happened. I don't ever want anyone to drive by and say, I wonder what happened to that church. I remember when they started putting that foundation of revival down. I remember for a while, man, it was on fire. But what happened? I tell you what, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some innkeepers saying, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to play my part. I want us to pray right now. Lord Jesus.